0: Up, Brenda is going to read our text today, so you can come on up. And if you have your Bibles, uh, I invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Mark chapter 5. And she'll be, she's going to be reading. The words are also going to be on the screen. Verses 21 to 24 and verses 35 to 43.
1: When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Jairus, the, er, why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, Talitha kum which means little girl I say to you get up immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around she was 12 years old at this they were completely astonished he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat
0: Thank you Brenda That last verse is my favorite I want not you give her something to eat? I bet she's hungry. Isn't that great? She just cares about her, her hunger, too. Apparently, being uh, revived from the dead, you work up quite an appetite. Uh, so, uh, this text, you know, there, there are mornings where it's like, it just seems uh, that the Spirit is at work in, in a, a really profound way, bringing together the experiences of our lives, and the things that we're feeling and the things that are in our heart and what God wants to speak to us through his word. And so I feel that this morning. I feel like there's just like this really uh, important timing uh, between our worship gathering already this morning and the things that we're sharing and, and what God is doing and the burdens we're carrying in this morning of, of loved ones and sickness and all of that and in this text. Uh, that this is, this is a very... Um, timely and timeless word for us. Uh, and Jay, I love what you shared about um, the church as being a hospital. I, I really do. I think, um, I think that is a great way for us to think about the church. It is, it's a place for, for wounded and weary people. It's a place for hungry people. Um, and, and the reality of the church being a hospital is there's only one physician. right? There's only ever one physician. Uh, but he always has plenty of time. And he's never he's never occupied he's never busy, and so our role is never to be the physician for others, uh, but just to help bring people into the presence of Jesus because he's the only one who actually has the ability to bind up the wounds that we carry from life and so this morning that's what we do we just we recognize we are in the presence of Jesus, the great physician, the, the healer of all of our wounds, and um, and receive what he wants to say to us now if you remember last week, so last week we talked about how both of There's two stories here in in Mark 5. Um, The one is Jairus and his daughter, but then there's this other story of of the woman who had this issue of bleeding for 12 years and Jesus heals her. And they're both sort of uh, combined here in Mark 5. And they're both interruptions. They're interruptions. Jesus had not planned on them, um, but he is interrupted by their needs and responds to their needs. We talked about that last week about making room for interruptions. How many of you had interruptions this week in life things you did not plan for and yet, yeah, it took some significant uh, energy. I had uh, an interruption, as we've kind of mentioned. Uh, our family had a pretty major interruption this week with my dad on, on Monday night, um, had a heart attack and he, he was, was rushed uh, by ambulance to, to Altman Hospital there in Canton, and he had emergency, an emergency heart cath, um, and they discovered that the place where they had placed a stent uh, two and a half years ago, he had a heart attack two and a half years ago, and his, the major artery that runs over the front of the heart, um, the LAD, you nurses, you know what that is, uh, it's often called the widowmaker. Uh, because there usually aren't signs ahead of, like, a major heart attack. The, um, the presenting sign of a Widowmaker heart attack is sudden death. Like, you know you, know you have blockage when, um, you know, you, you're not living any longer. And so um, they had placed a stent two and a half years ago, and that stent had closed up again. And so it blocked the, the blood flow to a major uh, part of his heart. And so we're super thankful... Um, yeah, they were able to, to rush him uh, in, they were able to open it up, to place a, another stint there. And, and we're just like, we're super grateful. Um, you have, uh, I guess, yeah, we kind of looked at some statistics of well, how many people survive one like, heart attack like this, in this artery, and it's 12%. If you, have, if you have a heart attack at home, it's 12% is the chance you survive. And I don't know what the percentage is that somebody survives too at home, but it's a very, a very small number, and so we are incredibly, uh, incredibly thankful um, uh, for, for my dad's life today. I got to call him this morning on the, on the way, um, you know, to worship with you all and just, you know, talk to him and tell him I'm, I love him and I'm glad he's alive, and yeah, and just, just process that. Um, he has some significant heart damage. When you have blood that, that is shut off to a major part of your heart for uh, as long as he did, there, there was damage there. Um, and so um, we, we don't know if that's temporary or if that's permanent. Um, we don't know what that will mean. Um, but we, we are incredibly grateful. Uh, we've sensed God's presence, just his peace and presence uh, throughout. It uh, doesn't mean I was always at peace or all of us were, but, but Jesus was always there. Thank you for your prayers for us. Uh, my dad loves Jesus. You know, he, he loves Jesus. He walks with him. Um, And he's trusted Jesus with the details of all of his life. I mean, he just lives in trust. If you know my dad, you know that. Um, And he's trusted Jesus with his eternal destiny. And so, um, I'm super grateful for that. But one of the things I was reminded of is like, it's when our life gets squeezed, like that's what's really inside of us comes out. Like I, I can trust Jesus and I can say that I trust Jesus and I you know, put my faith in him, and I sing songs about it, but it's when the circumstances of life sort of squeeze me that what's actually inside of me sort of comes out of, like, what's the extent of my, like, do I really trust Jesus completely? And I I don't remember if I've told this story yet here. if, If I have, it's a good story, so I'll tell it to you again. It's a true story. It's a story of John Wesley. Do you guys know who John Wesley is? Um, maybe not like know him personally, but uh, John Wesley was uh, the founder of uh, the Wesleyan movement, uh, which became the, the Methodist church. So um, you've probably heard of that before. John Wesley, he was a follower of Jesus, and he and his brother Charles, uh, they felt this calling from God to, uh, to be missionaries. And so they were in England, and they actually came to North America, here to the U.S., to be missionaries. And on the way, they were crossing the Atlantic Ocean, and the ship that they were on um, went through this massive storm, and uh, waves crashing over the deck of the ship and like swamping the ship, and, and they thought they were going to die. And so they're uh, there with uh, you know their fellow passengers, and they're ministering to people, they're praying um, with with folks, and. And there's this one group of Christians, uh, Moravians, like German Anabaptists. And they're singing, like singing these songs of praise in the middle of the storm. And um, John Wesley recounts that there was this massive wave that, you know, uh, the the ship rocks and and water comes over the edge. And everybody screams except these Moravian Anabaptists who never stop singing like they never missed a note. They just kept singing right in the middle of this storm. And um, so eventually the storm subsides. And John Wesley is so just like, he's a, overcome and attracted by what he saw in these Moravian Anabaptists that he goes and talks to them. And he says, weren't you afraid to die? And they said, well, like, no, we weren't afraid to die. What about like your women and, and children? Like, weren't they afraid to die? Sorry, ladies. That's oh. Whatever, and he's like, no, like our our women and children weren't afraid to die, and it, and it, it struck John Wesley so deeply because he knew that he did not have that kind of faith, that he didn't trust Jesus in the same way they trusted Jesus. Like when his life was squeezed, like what came out of him was not this complete trust and assurance. It was, it was a a pretty deep fear, and it, um, it led him to this, this. process of searching for that kind of trust, that kind of dependence on Jesus. And it was years later, he was actually a, kind of a quote-unquote failed missionary here in North America, goes back to England pretty dejected, and he ends up seeking out the Moravians again. And uh, if you know the story, it's, it's a beautiful story where he, he goes uh, to worship with them one night, and it's sitting in a worship gathering like that, it says he felt his heart strangely warm. It's like all of a sudden, what he knew, like, man, I trust Jesus and I can trust him, it actually became real to him in a way that it hadn't been. He felt his heart strangely warmed. That's a, that's a great way of talking about it, just like the, the presence of the Spirit filling our life. And it changed John Wesley. Like, from that moment on, his, his life and his brother Charles, their lives were changed, and it changed the way they ministered to people. And the evidence of that was um, those that they, they ministered to it was just like they were set free from the fear of death. In fact, there was a, there's an account of a, of a physician who, who treated um, the Methodist Christians, and here's what they said. Um, it says, many people, this is the physician speaking, many people die for the fear of dying. Many people die for the fear of dying, but I have never met with such people as yours. They are... Uh, they are none of them afraid afraid of death, but are calm and patient and resigned to the last. Like, just that testimony. This physician sees this testimony of these people have complete assurance and trust in God's care for their life. So, Jairus in this text is squeezed. He is squeezed by this interruption of extreme sickness of his child of his precious 12-year-old daughter, and, and in fact, uh, if, you, if you read the text in the original language, he says, like, my little daughter is dying, and it's like, my, my precious little daughter is dying, this 12-year-old girl. Um, I, have, I have three children, you know, they're 14, 13, and 10, and, um, and I don't know what that's like, I don't know what it's like to have a child who, who you love so much just slip sort of through your hands, your grasp as a parent, um, where you would do anything, anything for your child, and you would do anything to, to trade places with your child or to bring them back to life and to not be able uh, to do that. That Jairus is there, and his daughter is slipping away, and he can't prevent it. He can't hold on to her. So what does he do? Here's Jairus, squeezed by this, like, the suffering, the pain and loss of his precious child. And what he does is he turns to Jesus. He comes to Jesus. And and we don't know much about Jairus and what he knew about Jesus, if he had any kind of relationship with Jesus before this. Um, but at this point, Jesus' reputation was growing. Um, people were, you know, word was spreading about this man who teaches with authority, like the authority of God when he speaks, who, who lives with authority. and He has authority over things like leprosy and evil spirits and even nature itself. And Jairus, in his moment where he is squeezed by the circumstances of life, he turns to Jesus. I think that's a great um, a great testimony, and he comes to Jesus with faith, and, and he has amazing faith. He says this, he says, please come and put your hand on her so that she will be healed, saved, delivered, redeemed, healed. That's what that word means, and, and she'll live. Like, he, he just has this unbelievable <clears throat> faith in Jesus, and so Jesus responds, and he goes with Jairus, of, of course. So he goes, he goes with him, and of course, on the way, they encounter this other woman who we talked about last week. Jesus stops, in the middle of the urgency of this situation with Jairus and his daughter, he stops and he, he heals this woman. He, he has this beautiful restoration of her life. But while he's there and giving his attention to this woman who we talked about last week, Jairus's situation goes from bad to worse. Um, that he gets messengers that come from his home. And it says while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. And they speak words that wreck his heart. I mean, these are the words for Jairus that he has been dreading. And they say to him, your daughter is dead. Your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. I mean, do you hear the hopelessness in that? Like, it's final now. I mean, she was sick and dying, but now she is crossed over from death or from life to death. Your daughter is dead. Don't, don't bother Jesus anymore. It's, it's beyond him. It's hopeless. That's what's in these words. What little hope that there was is now surely gone: that Jesus had saved people from sickness, but how could anyone, even Jesus, save and rescue someone from the darkness and the finality of death? See, that's the problem with death, isn't it? It's like, it's so final. It's so final and it feels so final because because death severs those lines with the ones we love. It's like, it severs that, that connection that we have with those we love. And I don't know that there is any pain that is greater in this world than the loss of love. Then having love for another person stored up in our heart, wanting to like pour it out toward this person and to receive their love for us and to have those lines severed. Do you know what I'm talking about, right? We all know what this feels like. I don't think there's any greater pain in the world. Now, C.S. Lewis, who is uh, just one of the great authors and, and theologians of the last century, he wrote two books on suffering and grief. I highly recommend them. And the first book he wrote was called The Problem of Pain. And The Problem of Pain, as weird as it sounds, it's a wonderful book. It's so, so helpful. For understanding, what C.S. Lewis does in the problem of pain is is like he gives us a theological examination of pain and suffering, of why it happens, and and, and how we can make sense of an all-good and loving God, and and yet this world is broken and wounded and wounding, and we experience pain in this life. It's so good. He he does all of this through the, the lens, looks at suffering through the lens of Jesus revealed in the scriptures, and it is so helpful. But here's the problem with the problem with pain is he wrote it from arm's length. It's like you can examine pain from arm's length, and it's like you're examining something through a microscope and looking at it through glass, and you're protected from it. And that can be really helpful, right? But it's different than actually experiencing pain. Does that make sense? And then C.S. Lewis met this woman, and her name was Joy, Joy Davidman. And through a process of exchanging letters and conversations, Lewis and David, they grew into love for each other. By the way, I don't think you fall into love. I think you grow into love. And they grew into love with each other. And um, she had a a fall one day, and it was through, like, falling and breaking her hip that they discovered that her body was filled with cancer. And at this point, they love each other deeply. And so um, they, they get married, and they're praying for healing. And, um, and so she's diagnosed with this cancer throughout her body, and uh, she goes into remission, and they get to enjoy uh, several years of, of married life and this cancer-free existence. But after a couple of years, the cancer comes back, and it wouldn't respond to treatment like it did before. And after four years of being married, Joy died. And then C.S. Lewis wrote a second book on grief. And his second book is called A Grief Observed. And this book is gritty. This book is tough to read at points. It is raw and yeah, it's, it's, sometimes it is difficult to read. And the difference between his first book And the second book is that his first book was like on the near side of pain. And his second book was on the far side of pain. His first book was written like examining grief and pain from arm's length. And the second book was was written like somebody who has been through the trenches of it and has gone through the shadow of death. And is just giving this honest account of what it feels like. Are you with me? What's the difference between being on the near side of pain and on the far side of pain? Um, you, can, you can learn a great deal about the Grand Canyon by standing on the rim. Have you ever visited the Grand Canyon? Anybody? Have you ever seen it? If you go, um, you can do what most tourists do when they go. You know, they get up like, next to the railing and they snap some sweet selfies and, and whatever. You can do that. And you can appreciate the Grand Canyon from the near side you can be overwhelmed by the beauty and the vastness of it. Uh, by the way, I've hiked the Grand Canyon twice, and um, I think, it, I think the, the Grand Canyon is a misnomer. I don't think it does justice to like, how beautiful it is. I think it should be something more spectacular, like the very Grand Canyon, or so, you know, something like that. So we'll see if that catches on. Um, but yeah, so on the near side, where you're just standing on the rim, you, you can have an experience of the Grand Canyon. Um, but you're still on the near side it is a fundamentally different thing to like put on your boots and to descend 5000 feet into the sometimes torturously hot canyon until your knees ache for something flat and then you keep going and you're immersed like you're immersed in the immensity of the canyon so that it feels like you're being swallowed up by it and you reach this point where you're out of energy so that you just want to find a shady spot to sit and just like surrender to it. And then you keep going, and you keep walking until you've covered the 20 or so miles, and you come out on the other side, on the far side. And the experience on the far side is very different than the experience on the near side. Are you with me? See, on the near side of pain, let's say, easy answers are just fine. But on the far side, easy answers don't cut it. The pat, like simplistic answers, the the things that we say to somebody else when when they're hurting, they just like, they made sense on the near side, they don't do justice on the far side. Because it has to be real. Like it has to be honest. And all those easy answers, they get cut off as excess weight that you drop behind when when you were hiking through the canyon. They don't fit anymore, they don't work. And some of you, you know this pain. Like you know what the Grand Canyon feels like. You've walked through the valley of the dark shadow of death and you know like the pain and the loss and the grief that casts a dark, dark shadow, a long shadow over life. You, you feel this and you feel what Jairus feels here. And Jesus, in the middle of all this, Jesus says to Jairus, he doesn't minimize his pain, he doesn't give him easy answers, but he says this that it's kind of like it's kind of head scratching. He says, Don't don't be afraid. Like, don't be overcome with fear, just just believe. Trust me. Have this deep trust in me. Because the child is not dead. But what does Jesus say? Asleep. He's not dead. asleep. Now, there are all of these people around this little girl, because part of the practice in the ancient world was that, like, when a loved one died, you would hire, like, flute players and professional mourners to come in and, like, you know, weep and wail and grieve over this lost loved one. And so they're all there, and they know a thing or two about death, right? They've been around people who have died, and they know that this girl is not just asleep, that she is dead. The life has gone out of her body. So the question is, like, which is, which is it? Is a girl dead, or is she just asleep? Who's right? What do you think? Is she dead or asleep? I think it was both. I think she was, she was absolutely dead. I think she was... Um, the, the life had gone out of her body. That I think she was most certainly dead. And yet, what Jesus is doing in this passage is he is giving us, he's giving you and I as his followers, a new way to think about death, new language for it. That he is introducing us to a new way to think and to talk about death. That we, as followers of Jesus, for us, that death is just a lot like sleep. It's a lot like sleep. Why? Because we know that one day we will wake up. I think that's what's going on here. Like, this, this little girl is, is dead, and yet Jesus is introducing us here. He's teaching us that there's a different way to think about death. is because as followers of Jesus, we know that just like her, someday we will wake up. And so what Jesus does, it's so beautiful, so tender. He, he gets beside, I imagine, beside the bed of this little girl, and he takes her cold, lifeless hand in his, and he holds it, and he speaks to her, and he calls her back from death into life. He calls her to wake up again, and immediately life fills her body and breath fills her lungs and blood is flowing throughout her body, and she wakes up. Jesus has the authority to call her back from death into life. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Now, one of the the beautiful things about this passage is what Jesus says to her. And, Brianna, you did a great job reading this, right? Because Jesus, he speaks in Aramaic. And Aramaic is the language of the household. It's like what parents would speak to their children. And uh, so Jesus, um, he would speak Aramaic when he would pray sometimes. Like he would call his father in heaven. He didn't use the Greek word, he used the Aramaic word. He would call his father Abba, which is like this, this tender expression of care. It's like when, when a little child would crawl up on their daddy's lap, they would say Abba, right? It was like beautiful and tender. And when Jesus speaks to this little girl, he speaks Aramaic. He speaks this tender language. And he says to her, Ka'um, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Now, this is the phrase that parents would have used to, like, wake their child up in the morning. Little girl, little girl, I say to you, wake up. My child, my son, time to get up. This is probably the phrase that Jesus would have heard his own mom or dad say when he was a little kid. Like, wake up. Time to get. Do you know that sing-songy voice parents use? Right? Does anybody else do that? Like, time, time to wake up. And then the kids greet you with like, oh, no, you know, like that kind of thing. That, imagine that. Like, that's what Jesus is, is doing here. He's calling on that, that, that family experience where a parent, like, kneels beside the bed of their kid or whatever that's like in, in your house. Maybe some mornings it's not sing-songy and tender. It's more yelling, like, whatever. But that, do you, are you with me? Like feel that, that like sing-songy, tender, like it's time, it's time to wake up. And, and she does, she wakes up, and this is such an amazing miracle. and It is an amazing miracle for this girl and her family, but it is an amazing miracle for me and for you 2,000 years later as followers of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is reinterpreting death. He's, he's, he's changing the whole picture of death Because he has authority over death. And and death has no more hold on any of us as followers of Jesus than a long night's sleep. Do you believe that? But see, this girl, just like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, for this girl, like this calling back from death to life, it's only a resuscitation of her life. Right? Breath comes back into her lungs, and she's 12 years old, and she lives. How much longer does she live? We have no idea. But her life was extended, and that is a wonderful gift. She, she maybe got to grow up and got to have you know, children of her own or whatever the case may be. But then eventually, sometime down the road, she slept in death again, right? This, this miracle was just temporary. Um, and, and miracles in the scriptures and miracles in our lives today, they are always temporary. They're always temporary. These miracles that Jesus is doing here that we've been looking at over these last number of weeks, they're, they're like a sign. And that sign, it points forward to Jesus' ultimate miracle, the miracle of resurrection. The miracle of Jesus' own resurrection on that Easter Sunday morning and the miracle of our own resurrection at the end of history. The, the miracles, I, I, I wrote this down and I want us to like, to actually, to, to see it this way. Um, so that that we can have like a visual of this, because I really believe this. All miracles in the scriptures and all miracles today, they are wonderful, but they aren't the point. They're like signs, and signs aren't the point. Instead, signs point to the ultimate miracle, which is Jesus' victory over evil and death and the ultimate healing and wholeness of the whole wounded world. I think this is is what we learn from from these accounts, that miracles are wonderful. They're wonderful, and they're all temporary. Like, they're all all temporary. They're all temporary extensions of life. And so we pray for miracles, just like we did this morning. We pray for them, and we have faith to see them, and we trust Jesus for them. And we know that at best, they will extend life a little longer. My father's life has extended a little longer, and I'm so grateful for that. I'm grateful for every day I get with my dad. And we know that the only miracle that is permanent is the resurrection of Jesus. This is uh, the ultimate miracle. It is the miracle of miracles because it not only extends our life, it gives us eternal life. Do you feel that? Like, that is the miracle. The resurrection of Jesus is the miracle that gives us eternal life. It is life, uh, eternal life when we think about it. It's not just that it goes on forever, eternal life is eternal in both quality and quantity. Right? Think about this. Like eternal life, we don't even have any sort of framework for what it is and for how we will experience it because it is fundamentally different, deeper, richer, fuller, more real in every way. The life that we are living today is just a shadow, like a dim shadow of the life we will experience in the world to come. Sometimes when you look at somebody, N.T. Wright says this, he's like, when you look at somebody who's like sick or at the end of their life, you you say of that person, wow, they're just a shadow of who they used to be. But what if we looked at it as like a person who is the most healthy, the most fully alive, um, the most like vibrant person in the world today. We look at them, we say, wow, they're just a shadow of what they will be someday. Man, I love that. Like eternal life, it's not just like this life that goes on forever. It is fundamentally eternal and full and rich in, in quality of life. And then quantity, it's endless, it's limitless, that God grants us this ultimate gift of life with him, immersed in his light, in the light of his healing love, forever. And he's offering us, in this text, he is offering us a sign that is pointing to a new reality of the day when there will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for it will all be healed in Jesus' love. And the early church, they adopted this view. If you read the rest of the New Testament, this is how they talk about death. Just a couple of examples here. Acts 7, verse 60. Talking about Stephen. He says, he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. He's being martyred. It says that when he has said this, he was a text say. He fell asleep. Stephen, he he lost his life, but he didn't. He he fell asleep. It's like, because he knows he's going to wake up again. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 15. Brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. So that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's will, we tell you that we who are still alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Do you hear this? It's, just, it's like this reinterpretation of death, the victory over death. First, uh, 1 Corinthians 11 verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. If you read 1 Corinthians 15, again, this phrase comes up, the first Christians believed this, that death for the Christian is just a temporary interruption in a life that will go on forever. I mean, that's so powerful to, to like receive that deeply. Death is just a temporary interruption in our lives that will go on forever. And here's the thing, like, this does not minimize the pain of loss. And Jesus doesn't minimize the pain of loss. And and we know that it is incredibly painful when healing does not come in the way that we hope. When when healing doesn't extend life a little longer. And, And when we experience that, and when we pray for miracles, when we pray for healings, I mean, just a couple of things to keep in mind. Understand that faith is not a formula. It's not like, hey, if you pray in the right way, if you have the right kind of faith, if you, if you have the right people and the right setting and the right situation and all of that, well, you'll get that thing you ask for. Jesus isn't a pop machine or, you know, like some cosmic vending machine where, hey, you put the right change in, you press the right number, you get the thing you want. That's just not how it works. And I'll be honest, I don't know how it works. I don't understand but faith isn't a formula. And trust the heart of God. Like we trust the heart of God that is, the heart of the Father is fully revealed in Jesus. And so you can trust him. And so we know that every miracle except one is temporary. And we know that Jesus has taken away the fear of death. And we can experience, just like John Wesley did, in that, in that transformation that he experienced, that, that we can live Beyond and free of the fear of death. So when we experience loss, when someone we love falls asleep in the Lord, a couple things. One, it is good and right to grieve. That this, like Jesus never asked us not to grieve. One of the most comforting verses in the whole Bible for me is the shortest verse in the Bible. You know what the shortest verse in the Bible is? Memorized it. Yeah, Jesus wept, right? As a kid, it was like, hey, who can recite a Bible verse? Jesus wept, right? Two words. And, and it wasn't until I was like in my 30s that I realized <clears throat> we were walking through uh, a season with um, dear, dear friends of ours who lost two stillborn children within 12 months. It's just like the most intensely painful circumstances I can, I can imagine. And we're walking with them, and I'm reading in the Gospel of John, and I read those words, Jesus wept. And I, I just received it as this amazing gift that like Jesus did not deny pain of loss. And Jesus is standing at the, when he speaks those words, he's standing at the tomb of Lazarus, his, his dear friend who has just died. And Jesus knows, he knows he's going to resuscitate Lazarus back from the dead. And Jesus says something, he's like, I'm the resurrection and life, put your faith in me. And, but he still weeps. He still weeps. When you lose somebody you love, weep. Like Jesus, he, he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And sometimes Christians, we, we read, um, you know, we read that, that admonition to don't grieve like those who have no hope. And do you know what we hear in that is don't grieve. And that's not the answer. To not grieve like those who have no hope, the answer is not don't grieve. The answer is grieve, but with hope. Do You feel that? To, to grieve with hope. How do we do that? Well, here's how I've been doing that is I imagine, in the light of Jesus and on the authority of Scripture, like, I like to imagine. I like to imagine that someday, hopefully many years from now, when I am at the end of my life and I take my last breath and I fall asleep, that the first thing I hear and feel is Jesus taking my hand and speaking my name and saying, my child, it's time to wake up. Are those we've, we've lost in the Lord, like that's what I imagine. That's what I imagine when we, when we fall asleep, when we slip from this world to the world to come, that our first experience is we, we feel the hand of life, the hand of perfect love, and we hear his voice call our name and just say, wake up wake up. You're with me now. So maybe, um, I, I really think this can be helpful for us to grieve with hope. Like maybe you've lost loved ones or maybe, um, yeah, maybe you feel that right now. Like there is someone who is like slipping through your grasp or maybe there's somebody who you've lost and you just felt like, I can't grieve this because if I grieve it, I don't have faith. Um, and that's just not what Jesus asks of us. Jesus asks us to, to grieve but with hope. And so maybe just like to visualize this, to To visualize this this loved one, this loved one just feeling the hand of Jesus, hearing his voice, inviting them to wake up and to be with him forever. So Lord, we know that you uh, you are the healer of every wound. We know, Jesus, that your, your miracles, they are so beautiful, and they are so wonderful, and we read the scriptures, and we, we read these stories, and, and it inspires us to trust you, and we hear about how you're moving in our lives, and the miracles we experience, and we trust you, Jesus. We love you. We trust your heart, that you are good, and gracious, and kind, and, and you're better than we ever could have imagined. And so teach us to trust you more, to trust you, like, so deeply. Jesus, if there's any place in us where we're just, we're living in fear and when we're, um, as, as like, we're squeezed by the circumstances of life, that it's an invitation to trust you, to trust your heart. Call us with your gentleness to that. And and Jesus, we we ask that you would, would set us free from fear, including the fear of death that we would like, walk in the light and the power of your resurrection. That Jesus, we, we thank you so much that you reinterpreted death, that you won the victory over death. When you walked out of the tomb on that Easter Sunday morning and you promised that, Jesus, you're the first fruits of resurrection, that just like you were raised from the dead, we too will be raised. And this whole world will be healed from its sin and sickness and the wounds. God, we we are so grateful for that promise. And so fill us with with hope and love and life. And as we grieve and as we mourn and as we like go through that dark valley of the shadow of death of loved ones in our life, would you help us to do it with your presence? Would you help us to do it with hope and trust and confidence in you? Lord Jesus, thank you for the promise, the promise that you speak to just... That you will wake us up someday in your presence, and the light of your love will shine on our face, and we will be with you forever. Lord Jesus, we trust you, and we, we just um, we surrender our lives to you again today in this moment.